Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge. Now in the top 5% of podcasts worldwide. Is that right? It is. Uh, just to put that in perspective, if we're in the top 5% of Matildas by caps, we'd be Tamika Yallop. Oh, we'd be coming for Sam Kerr. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Where were we? So this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, everything, everywhere, all at once. Amelia McKellar joins us to talk about multi-jurisdictional, or MJ, mergers and how to deal with acquisitions that can affect many different countries and involve many different regulators. The main takeaway to me is that you can't assume that because you've dealt with a regulator on one transaction in that jurisdiction that you kind of know how they operate on the next you can't assume that you're dealing with the same beast and, and take the same approach the next time. Now, I know that Everything Everywhere All at Once was an extremely frantic movie that won 10 Oscars last year. Yeah, and that was one of the many multiverse-themed movies we've seen lately, including Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Now, the multiverse is the hypothetical set of all universes, right? And it's quite a respectable theory in physics. Yeah, the theory's been around for quite a long time, and there's now a whole multiverse of theories about the multiverse and the forms that it might take. It could be cyclic, inflationary, holographic, quilted, or ultimate. Gosh, imagine trying to clear a merger with every regulator in every universe. Yeah, I know that intellectual property clauses used to extend throughout the known universe, but they must have pushed that out to any unknown universes by now as well. Yeah, I bet they have. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, apart from the 5%, The biggest thing to happen this year may well be the merger reforms that the ACCC has proposed to Treasury. Yeah, I see the consultation period ended in January. Do we know how that went? Well, Treasury hasn't published the submissions just yet, but the ACCC has released a couple of its own submissions in response to the consultation paper. There was a preliminary one in December, and then a more detailed one more recently, with a lengthy paper from the former ACCC Chief Economist Dr. Graham Woodbridge attached. Mm, So is this like if you're trying to clear a merger and you put in a preliminary submission to get the ball rolling, but you know you might have to follow it up with more detail, usually a report from some economists? Yeah, I think that's what the ACCC might call strategic behaviour, so it's definitely not that. Oh, so the consultation paper sets out three options. Option one is a voluntary formal clearance process like they have in New Zealand and the UK. Yeah, and like we had here for a while, though nobody seemed to notice. Okay. And option two is a mandatory notification and suspensory regime, which is more like they have in the US and Canada. That's right. And under both of those options, the ACCC wouldn't have formal power to prevent a merger from going ahead. It would have to take the parties to court like it does now. And option three is the ACCC's proposal, which is formal and mandatory. And you have to satisfy the ACCC that your merger won't lessen competition or you can't go ahead with it. That's right. You can take it to the competition tribunal for a limited merits review. And you might also be able to go to court for judicial review, but that's going to be even more limited. So I'm guessing the ACCC is arguing that those other options aren't going to cut it and it's going to stick with its option three? That's right. The preliminary submission said that the voluntary process wouldn't deal with the problem of not being notified and the mandatory process wouldn't discourage that strategic behaviour like the merger parties withholding information Mm. and it wouldn't be any more transparent than the process we have now. Mm. Could they make the process more transparent in other ways? Well, the Law Council have also released their submission and they say there are other ways. Like maybe the ACCC could update their guidelines, which are getting on a bit. The process guidelines haven't changed much since 2013, and the substantive guidelines go back to 2008. Mm. So does the Law Council have a preferred option? They're recommending a voluntary but suspensory regime where the ACCC and the federal court apply the existing merger test, and the parties still have a right to seek a declaration from the court. 
that doesn't seem too different to what we have now. Well, the Law Council says the system we have now actually works pretty well. The ACCC gets its way almost all of the time, and they argue the federal court is actually the best forum for deciding these issues ultimately. It's built up plenty of competition or expertise, and it's been dealing with these cases quite quickly. So does the new ACCC submission deal with those issues in more detail? Well, it says that updating the guidelines won't help because that won't change the incentives. Okay, and how about the other options? There it says the ACCC has developed its proposed reforms as a package to be considered and implemented in its entirety, and the effectiveness of individual elements of the reforms depend on the entire package being implemented. That's not a take-it-or-leave-it, is it? Or even brinkmanship? I'm sure it's not that. They do cite some research from the Competition Review Task Force, which Assistant Minister Andrew Lee also spoke about the other day. And that uses employment records to estimate that over the last decade, there have been around 1,000 to 1,500 mergers a year, but the ACCC has only been notified of about 330. That would include a lot of mergers that they'd never be interested in, as well as those very occasional ones like Petstock. That's right, it would. Um, I mean, the ACCC is right in that it doesn't know what it doesn't know, but we also have no way of really knowing how many of those mergers would be notified under the new proposals. Mm, Well, we'll look forward to the rest of the submissions being released. Yeah, it still feels like the debate has a fair way to run. Yeah. What else is happening? So we mentioned last year that Apple had had a bit of a honeymoon with the courts and the regulators, and it hasn't had to change all that much about its operating model so far. But it has had to make a few concessions, and it's about to make a lot more, especially in Europe, with the Digital Markets Act coming into effect over there. Well, we know it had to allow Dutch dating apps to use their own systems for in-app payments instead of using Apple's built-in payment systems, which of course have a 30% commission. And something similar happened in South Korea, didn't it, Uh, for both Apple and Google's app stores? That's right. And in those cases, Apple has let the app developers use other payment systems but it's still making them pay a commission of up to 27% for using the App Store. Well, one of the arguments was that 30% was a ridiculous amount for essentially processing payments, but Apple's saying that only 3% is for payments and the rest is for all the other benefits that developers get from these stores. Yeah, and for its investment in building and maintaining the App Stores, though it hasn't really quantified that. And Epic Games argued that 30% was evidence of Apple's market power. But the district court said that it wasn't clear. It looked like 30% was a fairly common number across the industry, even if it was kind of plucked out of the air. That's right. And Apple didn't entirely win in that case. The Supreme Court has just confirmed that Apple has to let developers link from their apps to other websites so they can take payments directly from customers and again, avoid Apple's payment system. But wouldn't Apple find a way to go after those payments anyway? They have. They've said that developers will have to report to them on any purchases made within seven days of following one of those links and pay a commission on those purchases. Going to take a wild guess and guess that commission is something like hmm, 26, 27%. You must have taken the crystal ball home over the holidays. Yeah, Matt, I don't think you've been using it right. That's a very Apple thing to say. (laughs) All this is becoming more complicated with the DMA in Europe, which now says the digital gatekeepers have to allow third-party apps or app stores to be installed on their devices without having to go through the default app store. Well, that seems simple enough. Yeah, except that Apple now says that that or means it can decide whether to allow third-party apps or third-party app stores. And it says it'll only allow third-party app stores, which is interpreting quite narrowly. Oh, well, I guess and and or are pretty important concepts for a computer company, though. They are. They're fundamental. Um, This is a bit like the milk truck drivers in Maine who got $10 million in overtime because there wasn't a comma in the legislation. Oh, like to be one of them. And it was an Oxford comma too, the worst kind. The very worst. Here it's pretty likely that the EU meant and or and or. So we'll see what the regulators and the third parties think about Apple's interpretation. 
Mm, and I'm guessing there'll be a commission attached either way. Yeah, it's actually a bit of a lower commission. It's up to 20% with some additional fees when you go past a million installations a year. But again, the DMA doesn't say anything about the level of any charges. So I guess the takeaway is that Apple and other gatekeepers are always going to test the limits of these new regulations to protect what they think is the best way of doing things. Yeah, and if you are going to have ex-ante regulation, then you really have to get the detail right and properly engage with all the stakeholders, including the gatekeepers. You know, you may have to be their compliance officer to some extent. Definitely something to think about if we're considering a similar path. And of course, all of these changes only apply in Europe and not the rest of the world, which now includes the UK. It does. One thing they're rolling out a little bit further is that they're finally allowing banking or wallet apps to offer contactless NFC payments in the wider European economic area. Well, that's great news for Iceland and Norway and Liechtenstein. It is great for them. Apple has now done pretty much exactly what the Australian banks argued they should do seven or eight years ago in terms of the software encryption, the default settings and the user experience and which Apple said they couldn't possibly do back then. And this is something the ACCC has been looking at, as well as the Reserve Bank. And there are changes proposed to the Payment Systems Regulation Act that would make it easier to regulate digital wallets. Yeah, so we'll see where that takes us. It's been quite a long time coming. It has. Did anything else get your attention over the break? Well, I wanted to mention the new Wonka movie, which I took the kids to see over the holidays. Of course you did. Well, this is a kind of prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's it. Uh, Timothée Chalamet plays the young Wonka, who becomes the world's most famous chocolatier through an exploration of competition and consumer law concepts. Wait, I didn't see any of that in the trailer. No, but it's true. First, he winds up in indentured servitude in a wash house after signing a standard form contract just full of unfair terms. Oh, would that also be unconscionable? On the statute or under the unwritten law? Well, he can't read, so that's a special disadvantage. Okay. But in fairness, it isn't clear that Scrubbit and Bleacher are aware of that. So that might split the High Court. Mm, yeah, but definitely an unfair business practice, you'd think? Yeah, depending on the definition we end up with. Yeah, of course. And then when Willie's trying to open his chocolate shop, he's relentlessly stymied by the three incumbent chocolate makers. Here's what whistleblower and potential immunity applicant Abacus Crunch says. Slugworth, Fickle Gruber and Prodnose have been in cahoots for years. A sort of chocolate cartel, if you will. They've been watering down their chocolate and storing the excess in a secret vault deep beneath the cathedral, guarded round the clock by a corrupt cleric and 500 chocoholic monks. So that sounds a lot like an output restriction. Probably some market sharing in there as well. Yeah, they're particularly worried that Wonka is undercutting them. He sells his chocolate for only one sovereign, and he's a lot more innovative than they are. They may have a point with the everlasting gobstopper. It's hard to see the business case for that. Yeah, that's always bothered me. But the cartel bribes the chief of police to keep Wonka out of the shopping centre, and when he finally works his way in, they poison his chocolates and basically burn down his shop. So that's a misuse of market power, possibly? Yeah, it's just as French as arsonist again. Are they not in a joint venture, though? Wouldn't that be the argument? Look, possibly. They don't seem too worried when they're finally uncovered. We'll get the best lawyers, bribe the judge, rig the jury if we have to. We'll be fine. And they're all still in business at the time of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, though there isn't any mention of a cartel in the books, so maybe they've learned their lesson by then. Yeah, probably a court-imposed compliance program. I'd expect so. But I was surprised at how much competition in consumer law there was in this movie. I mean, it's got a lot more antitrust than the antitrust movie did. Mm. So is this set in the UK outside the European economic area? Well, kind of. The books definitely were, but the movie seems to be set in London, in Paris, and somewhere in Germany all at the same time. So it's a multi-jurisdictional movie then? I guess it is an MJ movie. 
Well, that's a coincidence, seeing as you recently sat down with special counsel Amelia McKellar to talk about MJ mergers, which is not a DJ, but it is an ever more important part of the merger landscape. Are they so important that we can just call them MJs and people will know what we're talking about? Hopefully by the end of the episode, they will be. I thought it was a mega jewel or possibly Mary Jane from the early Spider-Man movies. Mm, I mean, Mary Jane has other connotations too, which could be problematic in some jurisdictions. But I always think of my mate Mel Jones, the cricket all-rounder and now commentator. Is she in the top 5% of anything? Matt, she did score 131 on her test debut against England, batting at number five. So yeah, I reckon she is. Well, they'll all be forgotten after Amelia's interview. She had a lot to say about the particular challenges of the true MJs, how regulators and businesses coordinate across the world, and all the moving pieces that they have to line up. Let's take a listen. Joining me today is Amelia McKellar, who's a special counsel in the competition group and has been working on a number of high-profile multi-jurisdictional mergers recently. Amelia, welcome to The Competitive Edge. Thanks a lot, Matt. Great to be here. Now, one of the main features of a multi-jurisdictional merger, and is there something maybe a bit shorter we might call them? Yeah, well, those who do this kind of work lovingly refer to these mergers as MJs. And so we normally have to say, if we've said MJ, what that means, because that can bring up a number of other things. What we mean by MJs or multi-jurisdictional mergers are mergers between parties um, that have operations in multiple countries or jurisdictions. So a key question when considering this kind of deal is what antitrust and foreign direct investment filings will this deal trigger? And what is the resulting impact going to be uh, on the deal that you're trying to do? Because this can have flow-on impacts and delays to closing. It can result in changes in deal structure if not adequately managed. Whilst I talked about antitrust and foreign direct investment filings, uh, today I'm going to focus on antitrust issues. And so these antitrust filings, if triggered, can be what you'd call technical filings, i.e. ones that are triggered because the party's um, turnovers or assets in certain countries just reaches a certain threshold, or filings that actually requires quite a bit of analysis on the actual substantive issues. So these types of MJs are more complex when there aren't just overlaps in operations in numerous jurisdictions but particularly where substantive concerns actually arise, which necessitate a global substantive and oftentimes undertakings strategy. And so we're continuing to see mergers involving truly multinational businesses requiring this kind of global antitrust strategy. And such a strategy can be required regardless of the HQ of the parties. In many cases, filings can be triggered just because of the presence of parties by way of sales into the country or the location of assets in this jurisdiction or that jurisdiction. That can be enough to need to look at a particular country in detail. Right. And at the same time, it seems like there may be more regulators out there that are more interested in looking at these deals. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. There are, as you know, many countries where they've had merger control regimes for some time, you know, decades. But then there are others where uh, the regimes have only come online in the last few years, but in a pretty short period of time have become pretty significant regulator players. And I'm thinking of China's anti-monopoly law, which came into effect in 2008 and which spun out MOFCOM, which has become a, a very significant regulator on the global regulatory landscape. And then there are also numerous jurisdictions in our backyard in, in Asia Pacific with either nascent merger regimes or regimes that have been announced and are in the pipeline. And so we continue to watch these jurisdictions with great interest as well. 
Um, the UK used to be part of the EU, as you know, and if you triggered a filing in the UK under their own merger regime thresholds, but you also triggered due to the EU's thresholds, you wouldn't necessarily need to do a separate filing in the UK, just in the EU, because it's a one-stop shop for all EU jurisdictions. But now it's not the case. So how do you begin to deal with all of these jurisdictions and regulators in these big deals? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. And this is something we need to pull together in quick measure when these kinds of deals come to our door. It all kind of starts with the client appointing their global coordinating council who will be responsible for coordinating and really leading the global antitrust strategy. And then it involves the appointment of local councils in jurisdictions where the parties might have some significant presence or raise some antitrust issues. And then you often will work with the client's in-house counsel as well. At GNT, we are the go-to local counsel for MJs like these. And we advise on a lot of multi-jurisdictional deals from an Australian perspective. That is where there is a global deal and the parties have some meaningful presence in Australia. But we actually have a steady stream and are increasingly taking on more and more multi-jurisdictional global coordination council roles. And we typically find ourselves in this position where we either act for the target or the buyer, one of which, or sometimes both of which, have a significant Australian presence, but also presence by way of sales or assets in overseas jurisdictions as well. So I'd say that um, merger parties will typically have a feel for the jurisdictions in which both parties have a stronger presence and where some attention to antitrust might need to be paid. However, what really needs to happen is a comprehensive MJ analysis or multi-jurisdictional analysis. That's the kind of thing that needs to take place to really meaningfully consider the extent of the presence and operations of each merger party in the relevant jurisdictions to determine well and truly what kinds of filings are required. And it's the nitty gritty of it is that it's an exercise that can sometimes involve looking at dozens upon dozens of jurisdictions and their merger regimes initially. And then that list of dozens and dozens and dozens can get whittled down to hopefully normally just a handful of jurisdictions to be filing in. Although that being said, I have been involved in cases which have involved dozens and dozens of filings as well. So there's a whole range in terms of scale that we might deal with. But it is essentially a narrowing down exercise, which often takes place with the assistance of local council in jurisdictions where the position is not totally clear cut at the outset to us at the global coordination level. So for each jurisdiction in which a filing may be required, you need to identify potential risks and solutions, for example, divestitures that might be required or, or other undertakings. But what must constantly be assessed is what you're offering up against the commercial drivers for the deal. And you also have to be acutely aware of what offering one solution in one jurisdiction will do in others, because even if different issues arise in another jurisdiction, a regulator in that jurisdiction may see what's happening across the fence and want to um, get their piece of the pie or demand something similar. So how might the regulators in different jurisdictions deal with the same merger? Do they tend to align or do they really not? I feel like that's a million dollar question, Matt. So in a perfect world, as a party, uh, you'd lodge your filing with each regulator, engage cooperatively with each regulator, provide them with the information and documents they need to arrive at a decision. And then the regulator would come back to you with a clearance decision based on the local dynamics at play. But you often find that that path is not quite as straightforward as that. The regulators on global deals will often coordinate with each other. 
And they have pre-existing pretty strong relationships with each other on the most part through their ICN network. And this is facilitated in many instances by memoranda of understanding between regulators as well. And so it is totally normal for them to request confidentiality waivers from the merger parties to allow for this coordination between them, which is almost always granted. And so this means that in global mergers, you'll often find our Australian ACCC having lines of communication open to the likes of the UK's Competition Markets Authority, New Zealand's Commerce Commission, the FTC and the DOJ in the US and the Singaporean Authority. So that's just a few examples. Coordination between the regulators can have impacts on a couple of particular fronts. On the substantive assessment front, you'll sometimes see copycat behaviours between some regulators. And by that, I mean that some regulators might raise issues or want certain undertakings, but as the parties, you don't necessarily think that that issue or that undertaking should be necessary in that jurisdiction but you think that Regulator A is asking for that because they've seen that that's been offered or raised by Regulator B. And then the other big way you'll see an impact based on coordination is timing. And unfortunately, there are times when a regulator won't proceed through the review and actually proceed to a clearance decision until they see what an overseas regulator has done. But then equally, they can, in other instances, come to different conclusions based on their own local views of the merger and the impact on local markets. And it's not actually necessarily the case that it's the same regulator each time who is the harder one to get through. So an example would be the Microsoft and Activision Blizzard transaction. There are different views that have emanated from the different regulators. So in the EU, they accepted undertakings and allowed that one to go through. It was harder in the UK, which required a restructure of the deal. And then in the US, the regulators are trying to oppose the deal post-completion. And then conversely, uh, in the Amazon and iRobot case, the EU has recently commenced their phase two in-depth probe. However, the CMA cleared the deal unconditionally following a phase one, sh much shorter review. So you can't necessarily presuppose where it's going to be harder. So what are some of the recent developments or trends that you're noticing from around the world in MJ mergers? It's a constantly evolving beast. So on recent coordination matters, we've worked on closely with our extensive local council network. I think the thing that just keeps striking me is that like our own regulator, the ACCC, each jurisdiction's regulators and their regimes are just constantly evolving. And so, you know, notification thresholds in many jurisdictions change oftentimes on an annual basis. And then the issues the regulators decide to focus on also changes over time. So I think the main takeaway to me is that you can't assume that because you've dealt with a regulator on one transaction in that jurisdiction that you kind of know how they operate on the next. You can't assume that you're dealing with the same beast and, and take the same approach the next time. On the notification threshold side of things, HSR filing thresholds, either filing thresholds that apply in the US, they are inherently complex and they're constantly changing so if a deal involves some US presence, then we're sure to, to work closely with our US local council firms to work out filing requirements there. In China, the anti-monopoly law there was significantly amended in 2022, both on process and on substance. For example, they introduced a stop the clock measure on reviews. They introduced harsher penalties for failing to file. And then they appointed a few sectors as priority sectors for merger reviews. 
And then another really significant one relates to the European Union. And so in the EU, we previously only needed to really consider filing thresholds from an antitrust perspective. Um, But last year, in in developing their state aid principles and regulations, they brought in a foreign subsidies regime as well. So that requires parties to not only analyse what their turnover thresholds are there, but they also have to consider what the state contributions have been to the parties. And if they reach a certain threshold, that can trigger an FSR filing in the EU. And then, as I mentioned before, there are quite a few nascent merger control regimes that you're constantly monitoring to determine how to interpret their merger thresholds and obligations, which are never really terribly clear at the outset. And so, as a little bit of time progresses and there's a bit more decisional practice, the regime becomes a little clearer. And I'm thinking of jurisdictions like Vietnam. And what about substantively in terms of the tests they're applying and the process they're taking? Just at a high level and thinking about a couple of places. In the US, they issued new merger guidelines, which many consider to be a drastic departure from early iterations of those guidelines. The kind of overall theme is big as bad. And so one of the critical changes was that they lowered the thresholds at which agencies will presume a merger will violate merger rules. For example, the threshold is now at 30%, such that if a merger results in combined shares of over 30%, it's presumptively considered illegal under the guidelines. And the other big thing coming out of the US is their focus on trying to ban non-competes on employment, which has a lot of bearing on global deal documentation. And then in the UK, it's become increasingly obvious that the CMA is becoming more and more interventionist. And that's particularly so on deals that concern big tech or oligopolistic industries. Digital is always a hot topic with regulators across the world. So if you're in that space, then you're probably going to be particularly careful. There are quite a lot of PE firms which end up needing to make filings in various jurisdictions because of their presence of the whole firm as opposed to the particular portfolio company that is the subject of the particular merger. And oftentimes these are what you'd call the technical filings, so they don't actually raise antitrust issues, but just because of their widespread presence around the world, combine that with the targets and then that sometimes just raises antitrust filing requirements. And then coming back to Australia, how has the ACCC's experience of multi-jurisdictional mergers been driving its call for a new merger clearance process? As many know, Australia's regime is what you'd call a voluntary judicial enforcement model, which means that it's common practice in Australia for merger parties to voluntarily notify to the ACCC to seek informal merger clearance with some certainty that the ACCC won't interfere in the proposed transaction, um, and that occurs in certain circumstances. The ACCC wants to shift this to an administrative, mandatory and suspensory model where mergers that meet a specified threshold will need to be notified, where the ACCC will be the decision maker and where there will be limited rights of appeal to the competition tribunal. And then the other key change is that the ACCC is advocating for a change to the test to shift the onus of proof on merger parties. I'd say that the ACCC's experience with parties in global mergers is no doubt a contributing factor of a number of contributing factors um, that is driving their call for merger reform. And it's worth noting a couple of things on that score. So the ACCC feels that merger parties are being strategic in the way they approach different regulators and the timing at which they do so. 
The ACCC considers that merger parties will often leave the ACCC in the back of the line in global mergers. And the ACCC considers that the fact that the regime is voluntary lends itself to this sequencing of things. And then the other thing is that the ACCC feels that merger parties are oftentimes failing to notify at all, or they threaten to complete prior to receiving a decision from the ACCC, or that they don't provide sufficient information to adequately review the transaction. And that is a a kind of concern that they have both with global and domestic mergers. And we're following that closely, of course. Yes. Um, In the meantime, what should businesses and their advisors know if they're becoming involved in a multi-jurisdictional merger? First tip, I would say do not assume that the only jurisdictions you need to think about are those key ones from a commercial perspective to the merger parties. It's not unusual for clients to be surprised by the filing obligations that result from our MJ analysis, and sometimes they arise in jurisdictions they had not expected, by which they do concede later on that they do have some presence. Another tip I would say is to not assume that substantive issues can only arise in jurisdictions where there are significant existing overlaps between the merger parties. And thinking about that further, potential competition between parties and significant vertical relationships can raise issues with regulators as well. Uh, Another thing to think about is to factor in the timing impact of multi-jurisdictional filing requirements into the deal timetable and do that early so that there are no unpleasant and unforeseen surprises later on. And then I'd also say um, you'd want to ensure that your antitrust legal team is not only testing filing obligations from a pure legal perspective, but also from a risk profile perspective in terms of what the business is planning to do in this jurisdiction going forward and what kind of relationship they want to have with regulators in that jurisdiction in the future. The last tip I'd say is it's really important to assemble your dream team and assemble it well. And by that, I mean that firstly, the crucial appointment is going to be who you will appoint as Global Coordinating Council. And you want to ensure that you're engaging counsel with demonstrated experience in coordinating large-scale global merger control processes and counsel which has a really deep and extensive network of trusted local counsel firms as well that not only have great legal expertise but really good commercial incisive ways of doing things. And then also related to that, you want to get in early to avoid a battle for counsel in smaller jurisdictions, especially in mergers which involve numerous parties. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Amelia. That's great advice as uh, MJ has become more complex and more prevalent. And we'll definitely try to make that abbreviation stick. It'll save us a lot of time. What a great interview. I remember when the General Electric Honeywell merger was approved in the US, but rejected by the EU, almost caused an international incident. It did. The US commentators were telling the Europeans, we protect competition, you protect competitors. And that was quite the burn back in the day. They sometimes line up, though. I saw that Illumina has finally agreed to divest Grail after opposition from both the FTC and the European Commission. It has. That merger was completed in 2021, but both of the agencies found that it would lessen competition in early cancer detection tests, and they ordered Illumina to sell off Grail. Illumina said it would appeal both decisions, but in the end, it's now given up. And we do have some exclusive audio of that decision being made. The night warned us not to take the Grail from here. Give me your hand. Give me your other hand. Junior, give me your other hand. I can't hold on. I can get it. 
I can almost reach it, Dad. Indiana? Indiana? We might have to put a link to the video of that too. We will do that. But before we go, Matt, you can have your crystal ball back. What can you see in it now? So it's going to be a big year for competition and consumer law and market regulation here in Australia. There are consultations going on around unfair trading practices, ex-ante regulation of digital platforms and merger reform. And we should see substantive progress in all of those early this year. And we can expect to see some more deliverables from the Competition Policy Review as well. That's right. It's also going to be a big year for the ACCC. Uh, they've just been tapped to look into prices and competition in the supermarket sector. Mm, Cosy lives. Exactly. That inquiry is going to cover wholesale and retail prices, competition in the sector, and what's changed since the last supermarket inquiry back in 2008. Yeah, that one was ACCC Chair Graham Samuel's inquiry which found that the grocery market was workably competitive and that retail price increases weren't being driven by any possible weakening of competition. Yeah, and that did go against the prevailing view at the time, which was pretty much what it is now. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with there. Maybe they'll uncover another chocolate cartel. We can only hope. They're also going to resume their monitoring of airlines, as well as their ongoing roles in gas and electricity, and of course the digital platform services inquiry. And it's a fair bet that the government will think of some more inquiries that might be best handled by the ACCC. Seems that way. There were 15 sectors they were formally looking at last year, up from six just a decade ago. And there's no reason to think that trend is going to change. I saw the ACCC report on childcare that came out at the end of the year. It's a crucial sector, clearly a market failure in many parts of the sector, and a really thoughtful report. But it seems to be about a lot more than competition. Yeah, it does feel like an expansion of the ACCC's role, and we probably haven't seen the last of that. So you're predicting some terrific podcast content in the coming year then? All signs point to yes. That's great. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including partners Elizabeth Avery and Simon Mose with the latest on the merger proposals. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends to try the crossword. Till next time, this was the Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.